Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter five. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. It'll be the power of the Holy Spirit in the line of Peter with the authority of the Word of God from the line of Peter forward in an unbroken succession that will carry on the Word, the authority of Jesus Christ in an unbroken chain of command. And it will be the Holy Spirit that will enlighten these men for dogma, doctrine, using scripture. It didn't instantly figure out everything, okay? So when you go to St. Peter's and you see the chair of Peter, it's not him in a fishing pole and a fish. It's him and sheep on the chair of Peter being held up by those four church doctors, two from the east, two from the west. There's Peter, there he is, there's the sheep. This is John 21, the reinstatement of St. Peter. And everyone does the sermon, they say, well, you know, agape means this, and filio means this, and eros means this, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? But no one looks at the animals. (laughs) Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. We're not fish anymore, now we're sheep, folks. And the fisherman named St. Peter Simon Peter is not going to be a fisherman anymore. Jesus is asking him now to be a shepherd. So fish are done once they're caught. They die when they're removed from the river of life. They can't get oxygen anymore outside the water. And so they'll die when they're caught. Now, you don't want to be caught into Peter's net and then die, right? You don't want to be sorted out and thrown away with the rotten fish. Once the fish are caught, they're done. But sheep have to be fed and sheep have to be nurtured. So Jesus says, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Sheep need pastoring. They need tending to. Sheep can't make it on their own. Sheep need a shepherd. Fish are done. You catch them, done. Sheep can run, and they do. Sheep can be naughty. Sheep can be a little dense. Sheep without a shepherd is a bad, bad thing. Sheep, especially when they're eating, they don't care where they're going. They will go anywhere. They will get into dangerous, precarious situations. They'll be on train tracks. They'll be going where they shouldn't be. They'll be in front of a bus. They don't care, especially if they're eating. Sheep need a shepherd. That's us. We need leadership. We need guidance. We need direction. We need authority. It's a good thing, especially when sheep are eating. They go all over the place. That's all they can think about is pleasure, carnal pleasure. (laughs) They'll even climb a wall and eat from a tree, and then now what? How am I going to get down? I need a shepherd. They'll get caught under a fence. They'll get caught in a fence. They can't get out. They'll get caught in all sorts of creative sin sheep can do. They'll eat anything. When they eat grain, they get the grain bucket caught on their head, and the shepherd has to come and get it off. There's no way they can get it off. It's true. And then they get, if they eat too much grain and they love grain and they shouldn't eat it, then they get this bloated gas in their stomach and their stomach gets real big and they flip over and they can't get turned back around. Unless there's a shepherd that can upright them and set them on their way again. Sheep need a shepherd. And then they're happy as a clam. They just need a shepherd and they need good shepherding. And so Jesus has called Peter to be the first shepherd. The shepherd's the bishop. He has a shepherd's crook and a shepherd's hat, right? And sometimes, Ezekiel warned us, sometimes there are wolves in sheep's clothing that are living in duplicity. And he can lay their heart bare like he did to Nathaniel. And he said, when he called him, he said, in this one, there is no duplicity. This is a man with no guile. He discerned his heart. He laid it bare. 
There was no double. What you saw with Nathaniel is what you got. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. We're seeing that right now in our church. You will know them by their fruits. We get in really bad places, places we can't get out of. Crevices, cracks, brambles, wrapped in thorns. These sheep are caught in thorns. These sheep are really bad off. They've gone too long with no shepherding. They're weighted down with sin. They've gone so long with no care, with no pastoring, with no shepherding. Look what happens to them. They can barely walk. How are you going to get through that with a razor? Sheep need a shepherd. These ones have parasites all over. What would a shepherd do? He'd take his balm and he would get those ticks and mites so they can't breathe. He'd cover them with oil and the sheep's fur would heal. We need pastoring. We need good shepherds. We need good bishops who lead their people and teach their people and catechize their people, who bring their people home, who go after the lost one. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. He wants to shepherd us. He wants Peter to shepherd us. He wants the apostles to be the first shepherds. You're done fishing. Now you're going to be shepherds. The Lamb of God himself has made Peter a shepherd. And this is what Peter writes shortly after in 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, that would be the bishops, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, tend the flock of God that is your charge, not by constraint, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That's what the shepherd is called to do, to be an example to the flock, willingly, Good shepherds. Isolated sheep are in great danger. Because what's happening in the church now with the sexual abuse crisis is a lot of people are leaving. I'm not going to be in a church like that anymore. So they're getting isolated. They're leaving the flock and that puts them in great danger. Really puts them in harm's way. Peter right after that said, be sober and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. If a sheep gets alone, if you get isolated, if you leave the flock, you're in great danger of predators, evil spirits that prowl the world seeking the ruin of souls. They're ready to eat and pick off someone isolated from the flock. Satan loves that when people leave the church. There is safety in numbers. The sheep know that. They try to stay tight in a flock, especially when danger is around. Stay with the flock. Stay with the flock. That's what we tell our kids and our grandkids. Stay with the flock. Stay with the fold. Stay in safety. Follow the good shepherd, the bishop. Sheep like to follow. Just as in the parable of sorting fish, Jesus gives a parable of sorting sheep. In Matthew 25, the parable of sorting sheep and goats, which one do you want to be? Stay with the sheep. Stay with the flock. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You think the sheep were naughty. The goats are really naughty. They'll eat like tin cans, you know. He will place the sheep at his right, but the goats on the left. The goats are going to eternal punishment. The sheep are going to eternal life. Stay with the sheep. Now the apostles are going to move from fishermen to shepherds to bishops in an apostolic chain of command. And that's the four marks of the church. She is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. There is one faith, one baptism, one Lord, who is father of all. 
And to be an apostolic church means that it must be able to be traced to apostolic roots back to the original 12 apostles in an unbroken chain of command. Now, while he was in one of the cities, a man came to him full of leprosy. And when Jesus saw him, he fell, the man fell on his face and besought him, Lord, if you will, if you will, some translations say, if you wish, you can make me clean. Now, Peter had just had this exact same posture, falling down at the feet of Jesus. And Peter was talking about his own sinfulness. And he had just fallen before the Lord. And this leopard now, he's not talking, he wants a physical healing. But Jesus is going to address sin first, his eternal soul first, his eternal health first. Jesus is going to say, your sins are forgiven, not I heal you from leprosy. So it's very, very, very curious. And Luke is kind of tracing us through here by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. I will, I wish, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. In Mosaic law, you cannot touch a leper or you're unclean. Jesus touches him and immediately he's healed. So Jesus doesn't break Mosaic law because he's healed immediately. So he's not touching something unclean, it's healed. So they can't catch him in that. Jesus charges them not to tell anyone. Remember the messianic secret? Don't tell anyone. Go and show yourself to who? To the priest. You had to show the priest a physical healing from leprosy. It's Mosaic law. You have to show the priest. The priest is the only one that can absolve you from leprosy. Hmm. The messianic secret, blown. <laughs> Go show yourself to the priest. That will be the proof you need. This is how God set it up. Make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to the people. Make an offering for a proof. The priest has to say you're clean from leprosy. A proof to the people that leprosy was really gone. What is leprosy code for in the New Testament? Sin. It doesn't mean that the person got leprosy because they sinned. It's a spiritual word for a condition that affects the entire body of Christ. Why are the people so scared about leprosy? Because it's extremely contagious and it spreads. You don't want to touch it. You don't want to be in contact with it. It's very damaging to the body. In fact, it numbs the body. It numbs the body because it damages the nerve endings. And you become immune. You become desensitized. And there's so many symbolic things with sin. Luke is a physician. He knows how contagious the disease of leprosy is. Jesus is the divine physician. He'd rather treat the sin before the physical leprosy because he knows the eternal soul is more important than the physical body because the eternal soul is going to last forever. You're going to get a glorified body either way. He wants to address the sin first. Lepers had to live outside of town, which means they are out of covenant. They can't do the 631 Mishnah laws of the Jewish faith because they are not clean. They can't be in covenant. They're out of covenant. They have to live out of town. It says in Leviticus 13, the leper who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let their hair on their head hang loose, cover his upper lip and cry, unclean, unclean. If anyone's coming near him, he has to yell out unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone in the habitation outside the camp. He's living out of community in isolation like those sheep. Not only physically unclean, but spiritually unclean. Because he can't be in covenant. He can't be under Jewish law. He's unclean. He's out of community. He's out of covenant. He can't do the 631 Mishnah laws. They have to shout out unclean, 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 unclean. If all of us would shout out unclean every time we did a sin, 
It would be a very loud, 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 noisy world. In Leviticus 14, the Lord said to Moses, this shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall make an examination. Sounds like an examination of conscience. The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two living birds and cedar wood and a scarlet wool and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. And he shall take the living bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet wool and the hyssop and dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times upon him who is to be cleansed of leprosy. And he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. What is that? Have you guys heard of that before? This passage, read all of Leviticus 13 and 14 on your own and see all the similarities between sin and leprosy. I challenge you. But this killed bird is a blood sacrifice and the other bird is going to be set free. That killed bird is going to be on a wood, on a wood, like the wood of the cross, on cedar wood. And the scarlet wool, the scarlet stuff is like blood. And it's perhaps a prefiguring of Christ's death and his resurrection being the other bird. The bird that lives is going to be set free like the Holy Spirit's going to be unleashed. And he gives over his spirit, says John, when he dies on the cross. Freedom from sin when our relationship with God is restored. We fly away because of his sacrifice on the wood. And because of the hyssop that was lifted up to him when he was going to take his final drink, the last cup of the Passover Seder meal. This is a prefigurement of that. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and Jesus charged him to tell no one and go show yourself to the priest. And so much the more the report was sent abroad concerning him and great multitudes gathered to hear and to be healed of their infirmities. So much for the messianic secret. Jesus withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. And on one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus Christ to heal. And behold, men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they sought to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. And what did Jesus say? So nice you could drop in. Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. What roof do we need to remove to get access to Jesus? What sin in your life? What access? What are you holding others back from? What tiles need to be taken off your heart? What sins do I need to remove in my life so others can encounter Christ? Am I a stumbling block? Am I a hindrance for my kids, for, for my husband? Only in Mark's account do we know how many guys were carrying him. Four. The universal number, four men carrying Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Does he address the paralysis? No. He says, your sins are forgiven. He addresses the sin. One, two, three, four, north, south, east, west. This forgiveness of sin is going to be for all humanity. It's a universal forgiveness of sin. And when Jesus saw their faith... Oh man, this is a place he can heal. When he sees the faith of these four men bringing their friend to him, he says to the man, man, your sins are forgiven. Now that had to surprise them. They weren't coming here for that. They were coming here to get him unparalyzed. Man, your sins are forgiven. What a sight it must have been. 
being lowered in, taking the tiles off the roof. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question this, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemy? This is what Jesus Christ will be crucified for. Only God can forgive sins. And he's saying, your sins are forgiven. He's calling himself God. Crucify him. Stone him. Who can forgive sins but God only? When Jesus perceived their questioning, because Jesus can read hearts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise and walk? But that you may know, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them. He took up that mat that he was laying on. He went home glorifying God. Wow. And amazement seized them all. They were amazed and they glorified God and they were filled with awe saying, we have seen really strange things today. I'm coming back tomorrow. I want a front row seat. This is awesome. (laughs) We have seen really strange things today. This is amazing. This is marvelous things. This is miraculous things. What is going on? Who is this man? Is he Messiah? Is he the anointed one? Is he the Christ? The one we've waited for. And then Jesus went out from this scene, out of this house with the roof missing, and he saw a tax collector, a publican. They worked for Rome. The Jewish people had to pay tax to the temple. They had to pay tax to Rome. They had to pay tax, 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 tax. They were being taxed to death. It was a tax collector named Levi. His other name we know him by is Matthew. He was sitting at his tax booth at the tax office. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now right after this, right after this scene, follow me. Two words, follow me. Matthew is sitting there. This is his life. This is what he's stuck in. He probably takes a little cut off the top. You know, he's living in a pretty good house. He's got it pretty good. He's in with Rome. He's in with Herod. Follow me. This is his out. There's a line drawn in the sand. This could be his out. He's got a decision to make. Should I stay or should I go now? (laughs) He's going to go. He's going to go. This is his chance. Follow me. And he left everything, everything. And he rose and he followed him. The magnetic charism of this authoritative Jesus Christ, Master, Healer, Lord, is really strong. He comes out of that house, he sees Matthew, follow me, and he goes. Leaves it all behind. Caravaggio has a great painting of it. There's a play on the light. Jesus comes in. The light has come into the dark room of the tax collectors, counting their money, counting their cheating. Matthew says, him? Me? Me? Matthew's the one with his finger. Me? Me? Yes, you, follow me. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured against his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors, publicans, and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke, the physician, sees Jesus as the divine physician, the divine healer of body, mind, and soul. Soul first in these scenes. Forgiveness of sin first. Who, me? Yes, you. And he becomes one of the four living creatures, one of the four evangelists whose gospel is living and active. 
Inspired by the Holy Spirit, St. Matthew, Levi, the publican, sinful tax collector, becomes one of the four gospel writers of Jesus Christ in a living word. Last thing, the wineskins. I never understood it until this passage tonight. The old and the new. What does he mean? It's in every synoptic gospels. These new wine and old wineskins, what is this all about? We put new wine in barrels today. We age it in barrels. If you've taken a tour of Napa Valley, you see the barrels of aging wine. But in biblical times, the new wine was put into animal skins where it would sit and ferment over time, weeks and months. The skins of the slaughtered lambs, because there were many and they didn't waste any part, they were good recyclers. The slaughtered lambs would be cleaned up and made in the skin into a fresh, flexible skin-type bag. Beginning at the tail section of the skin, they would fold it together and start to stitch the outline of the animal together. They would sew the tail section first, then the back legs moving to the stomach area, then sew the front legs together until they had the neck area where the head of the lamb once was. They would leave that open. That was the place where you filled it and emptied it. The opening of the neck would be for filling and emptying. Okay, after using the skin of the lamb to make the container, then they would pull it through. So you who are seamstresses know you pull it through, turn it inside out, and you've got a good seam. Yes, they're shaking their hand, the women who, who know how to quilt and stuff. So they make these lambskins, these fresh new lambskins to hold wine. The fresh new skin was very flexible. It was supple. It was soft. It would move. It had movement. And the new wine was made out of grapes and yeast and sugar and water because the, the water was inferior, and a lot of people would get disease from water. They always had wine, and they they mix wine with water. So they always had to make wine. So after processing these ingredients, the new wine would be placed in this new flexible wine skin. And the opening section would be stitched tightly shut. And that wine needs to be closed and put hung, hung in the bag for fermentation process. It needs to be left and sit in this wine skin. So it would be hung up and the wine skin with the new wine could be hung while they wait for it to ferment. And this was very significant. And as the wine was fermenting, it would expand and contract several times because there's gases in the fermentation process with sugar and yeast. And you know how it'll go get bigger than smaller, then bigger than smaller. So this wine had to have, this wine bag, this wine skin had to have flex to it. It was essential that the new wine be put in a new wineskin. The aging wine needed to have a fresh, expandable wineskin to process the whole fermentation. Now the old wineskins, when they were done, became very hard and very brittle. Think of an old baseball glove, you know, that you find in the garage. After the wine was used up, from a wineskin, the sun, the heat, the elements would cause it to be dried out and brittle. And if anyone tried to put new wine into an old, hard lambskin, when fermentation began, it would burst the container and the new wine would be spilled out. So you have the old wine skin and the new wine skin and the new wine. You have the old covenant and the new covenant that Jesus was bringing. A new covenant. The old was law, the new is the Holy Spirit. And it's not that the old was bad. The old was very good and the old did its job and served its purpose for a time such as that. But Jesus had come. He has come to bring a new covenant, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it'll be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good. The Jews didn't want to change. The old is fine. The old ways of doing things, the old covenant, the old mosaic law, we're all good with that. We're all fine with that. Jesus is going to change everything. He's bringing a new covenant, a new wine. The new covenant, like the new wine, is going to be living and expanding. It's going to take time for us to figure out this new covenant. 
it's expanding, it's growing, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes on them and enlightens their mind, they're going to understand everything. I can see St. Paul, that three years he's in Damascus, he's pouring over the Old Testament scriptures, making all the connection to the new. By the Holy Spirit, his mind is exploding as he makes the connections with Jesus as the new hermeneutical key to view the Old Testament. Do you see how the New Testament, the new covenant had to be figured out by the power of the Holy Spirit that fell on those 120 in the upper room in Acts 2? The Holy Spirit just empowered them. And it was new wine of the Holy Spirit that induced a divine sober intoxication. Their skins were going to be bursting, their old skins, because they're going to be made entirely into new creations by baptism in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have to become a new creation to have this new wine poured into them because this new wine is going to expand and blow their minds. It's the Holy Spirit. 3,000 step in the water that day for baptism because the Holy Spirit has fallen on them and they're ready to explode. They need a new skin. They need a new garment of salvation. It's the garment of baptism. It says in Acts, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed and they were saying to others, what does this mean? Others were mocking and said, oh, they're filled with new wine. Oh, you better believe they are. They are filled with new wine. They are inebriated with the Holy Spirit. The new wine in a new wineskin. They're a new creation. They've been put the new garment of salvation baptism. You are a new man in Christ. You're a new woman in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the new wine and you won't burst other than bursting with excitement to tell the next person. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine in the morning. They're not drunk with alcohol. They're drunk with the sober intoxication of the Holy Spirit of the living God. And they're in new wineskin. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. It shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There'll be a new creation. And Joel says in that day the mountains will drip new wine. When Messiah comes, the mountains will drip new wine. <laughs> this is new covenant Eucharistic wine that will never run out like a cana. The old purification water in the old six jars turns into seven perfection. Brand new wine that's flowing and flowing and flowing and will never run out. And you can have it every Sunday at Mass. It will never run out. It's new wine. It's the Holy Spirit. In your new wineskin, your new creation as a beloved son or a beloved daughter of God. Don't pour this new wine into an old wineskin. It's going to burst. You're a new creation in Christ. He says, behold, I make all things new again. Pour it into a new creation, a new wineskin where it can be living and active and ferment and expand. And as good wine, a good vintage improves with age. May this wine of the Holy Spirit ferment to make us holier and holier and holier as we grow closer and closer to him and as we age, right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for this new wine, this Holy Spirit that you want to fill us with. Thank you for our baptism, our confirmation that you've made us a new creation in you and you want to fill us with this new wine flowing, dripping from the mountains. Please help us live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Let us be a new creation of the living God filled with new wine. And may we expand and may we burst only with joy to tell others about you. Amen. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 5, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.